The year is 1999, and I'm at the movie theater with my parents. We just finished watching Pokemon 2000. Credits were rolling, and the lights were gradually turning on. I have an ancient Mew card in my hands, and I was afraid to bend it before getting it home. If you were into Pokemon around this time, you know what I'm talking about. Mew was a super rare Pokemon. People shuffled past, their steps marked by heavy stomps, crunching popcorn, and cups of soda with ice. I was too busy admiring my card to really notice until a group of kids younger than I was walked by and mockingly said, "Ching chong, ting tong," to me and my family. Not sure if my parents noticed or not, but I definitely did. A fun day at the movies quickly became more of the same. Even as a preteen, I remember getting frustrated by these situations. I had to let things go for the sake of keeping the peace. I wanted to yell back to say something, but I felt like I had to keep quiet. Throughout my life, there have been many instances of commentary, glances, or unintentionally harmful questions that have made me feel less than. Why is that? As an American, I have to constantly prove that I belong here. Why are my interactions with strangers something to be assumed based on what I look like? I am American and of Chinese heritage, technically Chinese and Vietnamese heritage. And all of these are not exclusive; they all come together to make up who I am. Yet, for people like me, the Chinese part of Chinese American seems to get higher priority than the American part. Ken Liu is an American author of Chinese heritage who has written well-known titles like *The Paper Menagerie* as well as an epic fantasy series called *The Dandelion Dynasty*. When a book is written by an American author of Chinese descent, in my case, there's a set of standard tropes that always come up. You know, so one's tendency is to、uh, sort of lean into the exoticism of the author to sort of exclude what they do from the American mainstream. So. If the Dandelion Dynasty is marketed as Asian fantasy, that's one example of that. You know, the, the idea is this is not about us. This is about some other people. There's there's an us and a them, and Asianness is clearly them, not us. Ken works to retell the story that is often written for people like us, and to add more voices like ours to the American fabric. He joins the show to talk about how he hopes his work can make space for more stories like these. Hi Ken,、um, wanted to talk to you about、uh, a couple of short stories from your collection, The Paper Menagerie. I guess for these two, I kind of wanted to get your input on what your intentions behind these stories were. So all the flavors and the main title of the book,、um, Paper Menagerie. In all the flavors, you have. The character of this little girl and her family owns a grocery store, and then they they live in Idaho, where、um, a lot of Chinese men had come to work in the mining industry, <laughs> and she befriends them, and they, it becomes a whole thing.、Um, what was kind of like your thought process for going through the story and kind of relating it to、um, one of the main characters,、uh, Logan, to A Chinese legend. Yeah.、Um, so, Christina, thank you first of all for having me be part of the podcast. So, 
to talk a little bit about all the flavors might be good to just sort of go back and talk about how it came to be. So all the flavors started out as actually um, a law school paper. For those who don't know uh, anything about my work, um, you know, I'm Ken Liu. I'm a speculative fiction author. And I had two different careers before I became a writer. And one of them was as a lawyer. And while I was in law school, this is after I turned from software engineering to law, while I was in law school, my wife, uh, who was my uh, girlfriend at the time, and I took a trip out west and we visited Idaho. And, you know, she uh, was a photographer and she was very interested in photographing these old mining towns. And somewhat surprisingly, uh, we found out that in Idaho, during the gold rush in the 19th century, there was actually a large American population there uh, of miners who were of Chinese descent and, and Chinese origin. Uh, and that was very surprising to me because that is a part of the history of the ethnic Chinese in America that's not often discussed. I certainly didn't know anything about it. And it turns out to be legally deeply interesting because this was before the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And Idaho Territory, which was not a state at the time, was governed under federal jurisdiction. So while the Chinese were not allowed to testify in court in California, they certainly were allowed to testify in Idaho Territory. Uh, and so they left a very fascinating history, a legal history there. And I decided that I would do a paper about this part of history. And so, you know, we I took advantage of the trip to gather a lot of material. And then I was lucky enough in law school to find somebody, uh, Professor Parker, who was uh, Richard Parker, who was willing to supervise me in writing a creative paper. You know, I didn't want to go into legal academia. And so I was not particularly interested in writing a law paper in the traditional sense. I wanted to do a creative paper uh, that would uh, integrate this part of history into a piece of fiction. So my primary interest has always been the idea of American identity and the nature of what it means to be American. And I ended up using this particular story to explore the idea of Americanness. And it's always been very interesting to me because the story, All the Flavors, ends up being sort of a meta-narrative. I often ask uh, and, and just sort of listen to how people describe the story. And, and it's very interesting to, to hear the way people describe it, both in America and abroad. Um, so when I was in, um, when the story was translating to French, I remember uh, one of the commentators describing the story as um, a group of Chinese miners and their interactions with Americans, which to me is deeply interesting because it turns out that many of the characters, many of the white characters in my story are uh, not Americans either. They're Irish or whatever. And yet, you know, when non-Americans or even some Americans, when they describe the story, they instinctively describe it as Chinese versus Americans, as though white people are by default always American, no matter what their identity is. Uh, and Chinese, uh, ethnically Chinese people are always not American, no matter what their identity is, um, which is directly contrary to the point of the story. The point of the story actually is that these miners consider themselves Americans, because why not? Uh, Idaho territory was taken away from the indigenous population. But this was right after the Civil War. So freed enslaved people, native born, 
settlers in America, white settlers and non-white settlers, and immigrants from China were all in this territory trying to make a life for themselves, trying to figure out how to create a shared society. This part of history is deeply interesting and important because the ethnically Chinese population made up 40% of the population of Idaho territory. They were incredibly important in the building of Idaho. Uh, now, they were essentially all erased uh, as a result of the Chinese Exclusion Acts, but they were no less American than the migrants who moved from the East Coast, than new immigrants coming over from Europe, than the freed, formerly enslaved people who came into Idaho. Um, they were all Americans, as well as the indigenous uh, population of Idaho Territory who stayed on and, and became part of the history of the territory as well. Over and over again, a refrain in all the flavors is the idea of this interaction of cultures and the construction of a new American identity from the confluence of all of these cultures. It is not a story about how white people are default always Americans and non-whites are not. In fact, the story is very much the opposite, but it's very interesting to me to constantly see commentators who read the story and seem to just miss the point and to describe it in a way that is directly contrary to literally what the story is about. Do you find that you find a specific type of group is more likely to go that route? I don't know how I want to word that. Um, like, do you find that when you did the translation for that, when they translated it, that, you know, it was Chinese versus other, do you find it, do you get that same reaction from like other Asian countries or is it just kind of across the board? Um, you know, I think that's actually, um, I'm not sure I can make generalizations. Um, I will say that the exclusion of uh, of Americans of Asian descent from the American identity is fairly prevalent and across the board. I have encountered from all groups, including from Asian immigrants themselves, uh, this persistent internalized racism of exclusion. Uh, it's as though the Chinese Exclusion Acts have never been repealed. Um, this, this idea that if you're of Chinese descent, you're automatically not American is a deeply ingrained part of American racism. Um, and it's a deep part of this country's uh, fabric and history. However, that doesn't mean that it's universal or unchanged. Um, I, I think oftentimes when I point out the issue and, and people consciously think about it, they, re they recognize the issue. Uh, and they try to uh, think about why that is and what we can do to um, correct these historical legacies. But, you know, um, we've been dealing with this sort of thing for hundreds of years in the same way you cannot solve racism within, you know, just by an act of will and in a generation. I, I, it's, it's not something that you can just sort of snap a finger and make it go away. I think that's why we have to keep on telling stories and we have to keep on talking about it. Uh, it's one of those things that will just take persistent effort. You know, when we talk about the paper menagerie, it's the same thing. When people summarize the story, they always summarize it incorrectly uh, by assigning labels to people that are just not correct labels. Um, and this shows up even in the way that well-meaning people try to defend uh, or, or try to argue against anti-Asian American racism. Uh, you know, the, the, the sort of argument that 
Asian Americans, many of them are boring this country. That's just not a very good defense because it implies that being boring this country applies some sort of special special status. The founding generation certainly didn't think it that way, and that has never been true as applied to other immigrant groups throughout our history. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're born in Ireland or not. It doesn't matter whether you're born in England or not. If you become American, you're an American. Um, so why should whether you were born here or not matter if you're Asian American? And that obviously matters to me in particular because I don't believe that this sort of nativist justification is helpful. Um, it doesn't help me in particular, and I don't believe we should encourage and and make uh, the idea of being born in this country as a litmus test of whether you're American or not. So. You know, uh, I, I just think that this is one of those things that will always um, be something, at least in the contemporary, in our time, something that we have to constantly discuss, argue, and correct. Whether it will be a, a problem in the future, there's no way for us to predict. But I'm a hopeful person, and I believe that um, these discussions and these talks are helpful, and we have to constantly talk about it. And uh, there's no other way to, to solve the problem other than to raise awareness of it and, and to constantly make the arguments we believe are the correct arguments. I think bringing these topics up is really important, even though, like, yeah, we can't eradicate it with a blink of an eye right away. But I think having these conversations with people and bringing up these thoughts, you know, help kind of push people in the right direction to question their unconscious bias towards things. And I found it very helpful to write the story that I did. You know, it ended up, what I found most encouraging of all is just the degree to which these early Americans of Chinese descent were considered integral to the identity of Idaho territory. And they were considered integral um, to the formation of an Idaho identity. You know, these mining towns celebrated Chinese New Year with the Chinese miners. They celebrate Trinjia, uh, just like uh, the miners themselves did. The miners themselves try to share their culture with everyone and made Trinjia into an American holiday. And their gods were American gods, and their foods were American cuisine. Um, that was probably the most inspiring and, and, and cool thing to see of all, that they consider themselves people of this land, uh, just like their neighbors, and that their neighbors consider them also people of this land, just like themselves. There was a degree of acceptance, integration, and understanding that we are all Americans that is shockingly even more authentic and empathetic and genuine than a lot of later racial relations would be. I, I think it's interesting you bring that up um, because it makes me think back to when I was, I think, kindergarten. <laughs> and we were, we actually celebrated Chinese New Year in the classroom, which I didn't know was actually like, it was on the calendar. It was, a you know, like my classroom made an effort to like understand and learn the cultural celebration for that. But then as I grew up, it kind of went away. So it was interesting to kind of see this kind of like, I guess, wave of acceptance, but then it disappeared. Yeah, it's it's interesting to sort of observe this and to think about what are some of the things that have been done along the way that are helpful and what are some things that are not helpful. I'm a writer. I focus a lot on language. And I would say that one of the things that should not have been done 
was to translate 春节 as Chinese New Year. I, I think that actually is is a bad translation. By calling it Chinese New Year, you forever mark the festival and holiday itself as Chinese, without connotations in English of what Chineseness means. Whereas if they had just kept it as 春节 Um, and not translated, it would have been much better integrated because we are able, as a language and a culture, to accept new holidays and, and make them part of the American fabric. You know, if you call it Trinjia and then just call it an American Trinjia, and then that would be the end of it. It's it's Trinjia, but it's celebrating America, so it's an American holiday. No, and、uh, I think there has been some sort of effort to kind of sort of correct it because there are other.、Um, Groups that celebrate the holiday, and I think they try to rectify it with exchanging Chinese with Lunar New Year. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that either because that that tries to erase people's identities.、Uh, so my my view is you should preserve people's identities and make them part of the American fabric. Going back to language, you know, Chinese is an American language as much as like say Spanish is. Because you know, so many people speak it within our country, but having it over time, you know, there's just constant pushback. Yeah,、uh, I mean, the the issue there is that I don't know quite how to resolve because that's not、um, that's a separate sort of issue. But I, I I think the important point there is to recognize that large parts of American culture are constructed and innovated upon and invented. By、uh, speakers of Sinaitic languages and in Sinaitic languages, many American stories are told using Cantonese or Mandarin or Toisan or or other Sinaitic language, and large parts of American identity are constructed out of symbols with origin in Sinaitic cultures. So the way to do this is to recognize them. As such, and not to translate them as Chinese fill in the blank, because that's actually not respecting what the artists are trying to do and what their status is. These are American creations, so they should simply be left in the language that they are done in、uh, and just be accepted as part of the American fabric. And how do you see your work kind of fitting into the overall like American experience or American story with what you've been doing? I think a lot of my stories. Are very much reflections on and, and parts of the conversation about what does it mean to be American and who gets to tell the American story in this new age. For a very long time, right, the immigrant narrative, especially the immigrant narrative、uh, from an Asian American perspective or a Chinese American perspective, has been about、uh, positing there to be some sort of conflict between what is Chinese and what is American, and then moving between the two spheres. I think this is a very mistaken model. It's it's completely contrary to people's experience, and it's actually a very bad model because models guide the way people navigate spaces and think about issues. I don't. Think there's anything inherently Chinese, and there's nothing inherently American. If I self-identify as an American, then whatever I do, by definition, becomes part of the American culture and and the the idea of American identity moving forward.、Um, so whatever my stories are, they are American stories, and they're not about moving between two irreconcilable spheres because that posits that you can identify what is Chinese and what is American. 
some people may start out identifying as Chinese and over time identify as American. And once they do, whatever they do is part of the American fabric. And whatever stories they tell are American stories. That's just the way it is. Um, and if they don't self-identify that way, then, then they still might be, depending on how other people react to them and, and view the, those stories and, and reflect and engage with them. So I would say that boundaries between cultures and identities are porous and very open. And we need to adapt and view these things with an openness and a kind of acceptance of the porousness of real life experiences. I think very few of us go around uh, assigning labels to everything and say, this is Spanish and this is American and this is Chinese and this is Mexican. That's a, that's a terrible way to live. And I just don't think that's how most people actually do it. Um, we live our true experiences and we all form our own unique set of cultural practices and linguistic practices. And, and in the end, whatever is the truest story to us, that's the story that we end up telling. So, you know, I, I do, you know, for purposes of trying to make a political point, have to point out that it is not interesting to read these stories as stories in the traditional immigrant narrative. It's much more interesting to read these stories as disruptions to the standard immigrant narrative and, and stories that question the very existence of a distinction between Chinese and American, as stories that posit a fundamental uh, subversion of these tropes. And they are stories about the emergence of a new American identity, an identity that is inclusive, multilingual, and multicultural, and truly reflective of the reality of the American chorus, um, which is no longer a singular story, but a story told by many that nonetheless share a sense of this space and, and this, this collective story that we're trying to tell. Yeah. And I think one of those stories, the paper menagerie, like how did you come about that story and how it fits into what we're talking about? Yeah, that, that story, um, you know, it started out because there was a call for submissions from an anthology for stories about magic users or wizards. And I wanted to write a story about a, a magician that is very different from your typical vision of a wizard. So I thought of the character of the mom. And that's largely influenced because I was reading these narratives, personal narratives by women who would be commonly called male order brides, meaning women who um, came to America as a result of introduction services. And they're usually from the global South. And their stories are incredibly moving because these women are often figures of derision and, and ridiculed in common uh, mainstream culture. But that's simply because they don't get a chance to tell their own stories. And when you read their own stories, they're incredibly moving and brave and a, a wonderful part of the American fabric. These are women who have the courage to abandon everything they know, to leave behind everything they know for a variety of reasons, some of them economic, some of them not. And whatever the the motivation is, the story of them trying to find meaning in this new land, trying to find their own identities as new Americans, trying to add their voice to the story, trying to change this country even as the country changes them. These are incredibly moving, wonderful stories, and they are stories that have been part of the American fabric since forever. Um, you have to remember, 
Immigrants come to this country for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are reasons that we find noble and some of them not. Some are selfish, but so what? They become part of this country and, and their stories deserve as much validation as any other story. We don't get to decide which story become part of the American chorus because to be part of the chorus, you just have to tell your story. That's all that's required. No one gets to sit there and say, you get to be part of the textbooks and you don't. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the labeling, you know, like, who gets to pick and choose? You don't. That's exactly right. So I wrote the story about this 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 American mother and, and her story uh, with her American son and how racism, anti-Chinese racism, becomes uh, a part of, of her story and part of his story and how internalized racism becomes a part of his story and how he ends up not being able to understand who he was and not able to accept a very important part of his American identity until after his mother died. What is, you know, striking to me is the degree to which this is not recognized in the way the story is, is discussed. Very often, the story is discussed as some sort of conflict between Chinese culture and American culture, which just makes me laugh. There is no conflict between Chinese culture and American culture. It's a conflict between racism and anti-racism. And oftentimes, the story is described as an American father and a Chinese mother, and they have a biracial son. That's bizarre because it posits whiteness as, again, Americanness, and it posits her ethnic Chineseness as somehow excluding her from the American identity. That is not how the story ought to be described. It should be described as a American mother of Chinese descent marries an American father of white descent. And the two of them have a biracial son, who is also American, who then has to deal with the racism, the anti-Chinese racism that he internalizes. That's the correct way to describe the story, because it's an American family, and everybody in the story is an American. And by denying the mother her American identity, those who talk about the story are replicating the very kind of racism that is at the heart of the story. And... You know, it's, this is a point that I often make, which is in the way we talk about immigration, we often have this idea and this narrative that immigrants are expected to be grateful for being given a chance to become Americans. I don't think that's actually the right narrative at all. I think the narrative ought to be all of us should be grateful to each other in the way that those who immigrate to this country change this country. We should be grateful for that in the same way that they are changed by this country. Assimilation is not a one-way street. It involves us changing along with the newcomers. There's no reason for us to expect that things will stay exactly the same. If we welcome others to join us, then we should expect to be changed by them as well. And a lot of the conflict in this country is precisely because there is a segment of the population that believes that only newcomers should change. But that's ridiculous. Why? Why should that be? We should be grateful to the immigrants in the same way that immigrants should be grateful to those who are already here. We should be grateful to each other. It is because we change each other that we can build something new. Out of many, one does not mean you get to change and we stay the same. It means we all change. Yeah, uh, we can kind of see like assimilation as a, like, a way to grow together into something new and wonderful versus, you know, I guess if you want to think about it, kind of like a bad relationship, someone's like 
constantly trying to be better and change their ways. But then there's the person who's over here being stubborn <laughs> and like, no, my way is right. And this relationship is going to be terrible if it continues the route that it's going to go. Exactly. So I, I view this as the anti-colonial, anti-racist narrative of assimilation, which is a two-way street. Um, assimilation is not about just one side whatever that may be, giving up something. That's not how that works. It's about all of us changing and growing, like you say, together. I think that's a much more interesting, fun, encouraging, productive, empathetic narrative. Um, it, it shifts away from the tired old story that we're all sick of. And, and we need a new story. Uh, a new story is ultimately the best antidote against being stuck in historical patterns that are just not productive. Yeah, and while you speak of new histories and moving forward, I'm interested in hearing you talk about your completion of your series, The Dandelion Dynasty, because that's kind of where that goes, right? Yeah, thank you. So I spent a decade working on this giant epic fantasy series, which I call Soak Punk. So to briefly describe it, it's a four-volume epic fantasy that's about a history of a people. And the idea here is this is a secondary world in which there are no wizards, but engineers, engineers both of machines and also engineers of societies. It's about a, a violent political upheaval. It's about war. It's about invasion. It's about trying to live with a history of past atrocities. Now, this should sound very familiar because this is the story of America. It's the story of the emergence of a multicultural, multilingual country like the United States that has points of pride as well as uh, original sin. There are parts of our history that we should be extremely proud of, and there are parts of our history that we need to work really hard to correct the injustices of. And I wrote the story largely because I was inspired by the way we tell the story of America. So even, you know, from the days of the founding generation, America has had a tendency to reimagine itself and to retell its story in terms of Rome, as, a, as an example. We have a tendency to retell our story and to tell our story as a kind of Rome punk, if you will. <laughs> we imagine ourselves as a kind of a modern incarnation of Rome. And so if you go to Washington, D.C., right, our government buildings are constructed as copies of Roman temples. We um, style our political institutions as senators, and, and, and we speak about our own republic in a lot of ways by reference to Rome. We even speak about our own military and foreign policy decisions by comparison to Roman decisions, and we worry about our republic going down the same route as, as Rome. Now, this is very natural, and, and, and it makes a lot of sense, but it also sort of constrains us. When we use Rome as the only political example, as the only political legend against which we compare ourselves, we are locked into one particular story, and it's not necessarily a hopeful story. It, it highlights certain dangers, but then disguises other dangers. It highlights certain contributions and certain parts of our heritage, but then hides other parts. And so I said, okay, I want to retell the story of America. Is there a, f a way for me to do this using a different political model? So I said, okay, let's try something that I've never seen done before. What if I take 
the historical legends around the rise of the Han Dynasty in China, which is a contemporary of the Roman Republic? What if I take those set of legends and use them as the political model and the political legends against which a modern, emergent, multicultural, multilingual country like the United States would measure itself against? What if I could essentially tell the story of the emergence of a modern nation, much like America, using these historical Chinese legends as the founding myth? And so that's really what the Dunderland dynasty is about. Um, it's about constitutionalism. It's about the emergence of a modern people trying to come to terms with their historical injustices, with their historical complexities, with the idea of merging many into one, with trying to form institutions that serve justice, controlling political power, constraining majoritarian impulses to protect minority interests, trying to create a government that is democratic and reflective of the will of the people. How do we do all of those things if the model is not Rome, but Han Dynasty China? And I had a lot of fun writing it. You know, it, it sort of engaged all of my interests as a constitutional student, as a as a student of constitutionalism, of of law, of the history of of this country, and our tendency to re-narrate our own story using historical models. Um, and I do feel like, in some ways, this the series as a whole is a really. It's, it's about as good a summary as I can imagine of my own reflections and thoughts on these issues of identity and American exceptionalism and, and our, our story as a modern people. With all these stories and retelling, or I guess redefining what American is, do you ever feel like pigeonholed incorrectly into a label that you are Chinese versus being an American? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is... This is constant. The nature of publishing is such that we have to fit new stories into existing categories somehow. So, you know, there's a set of standard narratives we use to publicize and to market books. So when a book is written by an American author of Chinese descent, in my case, there's a set of standard tropes that always come up. You know, one's tendency is to uh, sort of lean into the exoticism of the author to sort of exclude what they do from the American mainstream. So if if the Dantlan dynasty is marketed as Asian fantasy, that's one example of that. You know, the, the idea is this is not about us. This is about some other people. There's there's an us and a them. And Asian is, is clearly them, not us. And so it, it becomes metaphorically shelved next to books from China, Japan, Korea, rather than books from America, uh, which is something that I have to actually push very hard against. Uh, now, in the United States, that doesn't really happen anymore. The shelving of my books next to authors, um, you know, from China, that doesn't really happen. But in other countries, it does. You know, I've had my books being described as, you know, Chinese fantasy in Spain or France or whatever. And it, in, in these places, the marketers just don't see what I do as part of the American fabric, even though that's actually the entire point. Uh, and they classify it as some sort of Chinese story. And I'm sure lots of authors have had this experience. The other tendency that tends to sometimes come up is the auto 
biographical reading. So this is the idea that authors who are, um, you know, of a certain demographic, let's say that's white and male and so on and so forth, they get to tell stories based on their imagination. So what they write is a pure act of imagination. We don't need to know anything about their lives. But a writer of Chinese descent like me, the story that I can tell must necessarily not be universal. It has to be particularized by being read autobiographically. So, you know, I have uh, readers who come to me and ask me about my relationship with my mom based on the paper menagerie, which is just comical. I don't write anything autobiographically. I just don't, I no more so than somebody like Shakespeare would write autobiographically. I mean, all of our stories are, of course, based on our understanding of human nature, which is necessarily based on your own experience. Insofar as that's true of all authors, I don't have any objections to that. But insofar as, you know, authors of Chinese descent are read as though they have nothing universal to say, and they're just writing thinly disguised autobiography, it is pretty ridiculous. I mean, I actually had a reader uh, at one point come up to me after a festival and said, well, you're not biracial and, and you know, the story that you wrote isn't actually a true story, so I don't like it anymore. And I'm sort of like, okay, well, you're, you're entitled to that opinion, but that seems to me that you don't actually understand what fiction is or what the point of fiction is, but you're entitled to feel that way. But I'm not required to satisfy your, your desire in that way either. So you're telling me magical paper animals aren't real is what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So what does it mean to be American for you? That's a really good question. I'm not sure there is um, a way to define it succinctly. I think it's about how much you long to tell your story as part of the grander story of America itself. I think that's the way I would say it. If you yearn to fit your story into the story of another people, then I think by definition, you're not American. I think to be American, one of the most important requirements is your belief that your story is part of the story of this land, the story of this people, and that these are the people whose story you want your story to belong to, and that their story feel to you like the most important story that you want to be part of. We all yearn to be part of a grander story, to make a difference in that way, to contribute our voices to a grander story that we feel part of. And I feel that way, and I feel like if you feel that's if you feel that way about America, then your story is an American story and you're an American. Um, you know, I can't tell you how proud I was and how happy I was to be selected for these international festivals as an American author to represent our country. Something that a lot of people may not know about is for international festivals, when these organizers invite authors from America Sometimes part of their trip is sponsored by the State Department. We actually have a specific part of our national budget allocated to helping promote American voices abroad, to bring American stories to other countries, to allow other countries to understand us better as a people, to help me tell my story as part of the American story. I, I was really, it really was a great sense of honor and, and joy to be part of that. 
And unless you're an American, I think it's very hard for you to understand why that's so important. You know, it's that moment when you are abroad and you see the American flag and you hear the voices coming to you and greet you as a fellow citizen. Uh, that sense of pride, of joy in our collective story, a story that has no parallel in the rest of the world, a story that stands apart. We are not perfect by any means, but one of the great parts of the American story has always been our belief that we can be perfected. And I, I will say that I, I think that is unique. I don't know of any other nation's story in which the belief in our own ability to be perfected is so core, so central to our identity. And that makes me very proud. Um, it is a great part of our contribution to the world, um, our mark um, in the universe and to humanity as a whole. The American story is exceptional. It is unique. It is special. And it is our story, and it is my story. I'm just kind of thinking back on something else, kind of how the relationship with how we interact with our stories like this is a bit of, like unrequited love. <laughs> yeah. So there's this, um, this is a point that's being made by poets from uh, enslaved populations, indigenous poets, uh, immigrant poets, uh, Asian American poets since forever. A part of the American story is this deep, deep sense of unrequited love, right? So you've had James Baldwin and so many other poets historically who have written odes to America in which the primary emotion is, I love this country, but the country does not love me. And my fundamental answer to that is, Sometimes that's just the way it is, and, and that is part of the imperfection and part of the historical injustice of our national story. But it doesn't have to be that way always. The unrequited love that some of us have for this country is not a permanent state of things. In the same way that there will be a moment when we look back on these past voices and love them back, Future generations may love us back, even if our love for the country is unrequited at the moment. I think that's one of the great hopes and one of the great unique aspects, again, of the American story, that the sense of unrequited love, the sense of injustice, the sense of we love the country, but the country does not love us, can be temporary, but it is not permanent. Um, the story of this country changes. Who gets to tell the story of America? Who gets to be considered American changes over time. And we cannot be erased and we cannot be forgotten. Our love for this country will be recognized one day. And uh, that is also a great sense of hope. Um, and also the fact that we love the country does not require being loved back to make it valuable, to make it real, to make it true. In the same way that so many generations of descendants of the enslaved and the colonized, the conquered, and the oppressed have loved this country without having their love being returned. But that's, that's not a permanent state of affairs. You know, I think only if you give up on this country, does that state of affairs persist. As long as you don't give up, the, the love will be will be real and it will be recognized. It will have its, its, its beauty celebrated. The promise made in the Declaration of Independence and in our constitution 
will be fulfilled. You know, at the moment of its founding, we knew it was not fulfilled for everyone. And again, we are not a perfect country, and we know that. But we believe in the perfectibility of our nation, and we believe in dreams. Generations and generations of people have loved this country and professed their love for this country. While that country did not love them back at the moment, and we have faith that the dream will come true, and that this is not a permanent state of affairs. That was my conversation with Ken Liu, American author of *The Paper Menagerie*, *The Hidden Girl*, and the recently completed *Dandelion Dynasty* series. Learn more about Ken and his work at his website, KenLiu.name. That's K-E-N-L-I-U dot N-A-M-E. He's also on Twitter and Instagram. His story, Good Hunting, has been adapted as an episode in season one of Netflix's adult animated series, Love, Death, and Robots. And he has also won the Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards for his fiction. For more information on this episode and the series, head to pbsreno.org slash refugeesdaughter. And a special thank you to Ken for joining the show. Subscribe to Refugee's Daughter wherever you listen to podcasts and give the show a rating and review. I'm Christina Lee, and thanks for listening. This episode was written by Christina Lee with production help from Divergent Point Media. Refugee's Daughter is a presentation of PBS Reno. 